As we come now to the proclamation of God's Word, we're continuing through the book of Ecclesiastes. We find ourselves in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, right in the middle of the chapter, verses 15 through 29. And I have to say that as we continue on through Ecclesiastes, I, I am thinking, boy, that was probably the most difficult text that Solomon wrote in the book of Ecclesiastes. We should be good from now on out. And then he throws us even more (laughs) difficulty in his words and trying to understand uh, what he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But the, the beauty of Ecclesiastes is that as we read it and we get the sense of who he is and how he is writing as a as a man who lives under the sun, we begin to be able to relate to him in so many ways and say, yeah, Solomon, I get it. I feel that too. And then we see the glory of God shine through when we realize that there is a life above the sun, a life that is promised to us in Christ our Lord that is far greater than this life we live on earth. So let us look now to Ecclesiastes 7, verses 15 through 29. Hear God's word. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why would you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why would you die before your time? It is good that you take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God will come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your servant knows that many times you have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which was been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do ask now that you would once again... Allow your spirit to attend the proclamation of your word so that it might minister the grace of your gospel to our hearts, that you would strengthen our faith, that you would convict us of unrighteousness and draw us to Jesus, our Savior, by your grace and power alone. We ask this in his name. Amen. Mark Twain 
once wrote a short story called The Story of a Little Boy Who Didn't Come to Grief. Or, I'm sorry, The Story of a Bad Little Boy Who Didn't Come to Grief. And he starts rather humorously, as Twain often does, uh, introducing us to a boy named Jim. <laughs> and he says, once there was a, a bad little boy whose name was Jim. Though, if you will notice, you will find that bad little boys are all, nearly always called James in your Sunday school books. And that is no offense to the Jims or the Jameses here. Maybe it should be. <laughs> it was very strange, but it was still true that this one was called Jim. And Jim really was a bad boy. He stole apples from Farmer Acorn's orchard and the limb that he climbed up didn't suddenly break underneath him and break his leg as a form of justice. And he stole his teacher's pocket knife. And then he, he hid it in the cap of a, the good boy, George Wilson, who always obeyed his mother and always did what was right and always went to Sunday school. And yet George took the blame and was punished for Jim's theft. And Jim went boating on a Sunday and he didn't drown and he went fishing instead of going to church and he wasn't struck by lightning. And when Jim grew up, his life didn't come to ruin. And in fact, Twain, as he writes, he says, Jim got wealthy by all manner of cheating and rascality and now he is the infernalist, wickedest scoundrel in his native village and is universally respected and belongs to the legislature. <laughs> it's a humorous little tale, but it illustrates a maddening and a mournful reality. And that is sometimes the wicked in this life under the sun do escape justice. And the uncomfortable flip side of that is that sometimes the righteous suffer. Good things happen to bad people. And good people suffer bad things in this life. These are the paradoxes of life under the sun. And they cause us great concern. They rattle us. They trouble us in our souls. And Solomon, the preacher king, he knows this. And he wants to understand himself. Why is life like this? He wants to figure it out. Why do the bad little boys named Jim sometimes never come to grief? And as he turns now to look at the world once again, he records his reflections. And the first thing that he shows us is that life in this world really is twisted and tangled. And a great knot of confusion in verse 15, he says, In my vain life, I've seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. The preacher is making another one of his observations that have come from his investigation upon life under the sun. And this one feels like a deep injustice to him. After all, God has promised in his word that he does bless the righteous. I mean, look right in the middle of the Ten Commandments and what do you read? Honor your father and your mother 
as the Lord God commanded you, which is a command not just to honor your parents, but to all authority. And he says, why? That your days may be long and it may go well with you in the land that your Lord God is giving you. But in observing the world, the preacher sees two glaring paradoxes that make this twisted and tangled. At first, he says, sometimes the righteous don't live long. They actually do suffer. Sometimes their lives are short. And examples of this abound within and without the Bible. Abel was righteous, but he was murdered by his own brother, wicked Cain. Stephen was a young man, an early leader in the church, who was stoned to death for courageously preaching the gospel. And Jesus Christ, our own Lord and Savior, was crucified in his early 30s. And there was no one more righteous than than him. And that his life was relatively short. And we can look into examples of history as well. The story of Felicity and Perpetua is well known to two young African, North African women who were believers in the first century. One was an expecting mother, the other a recent mother. They were imprisoned for their faith in Christ. And when they refused to turn from Jesus, they were put to death. And there is story after story, generation after generation, that lays heavy on the heart because we see that the righteous do suffer. Many times there are those untold stories of God's own people, those who do trust Christ, who are seeking to walk in obedience to the law of God through the power of the Spirit, and they suffer in silence. There's that godly Christian father who's struggling to provide for his family and can't seem to find decent work, and now his car is broken down once again. There's that young Christian mother who dies of cancer unexpectedly and leaves behind her husband and young children crushed in grief. And we say, why is this? They loved you, Lord. They followed you. Why do the righteous suffer? And adding to that confusing madness in the mind of Solomon the preacher is that sometimes the wicked actually prosper. And do quite well. Sometimes the God and godly go on for years in their depravity. Asaph was a psalmist. And he was troubled and perplexed by this same paradox that bothered the preacher. He writes in Psalm 73, 12 and 13. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in incense. The wicked always seem to have it easy. They increase in riches. They spend money on all their immoral desires. And in vain, says the psalmist, I have kept my heart clean. In vain, I've tried to live a righteous life, a life that will make God happy with me. So why aren't you blessing me? Well, therein lies the problem. And it is this, as you cannot count on your righteousness to make life under the sun better. Contrary than what, to what the prosperity preachers may tell you. 
That is the point of verses 16 through 17. The preacher says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why would you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why would you die before your time? Now that is a very confusing text to say the least. Do not be overly righteous. Do not be too wise. Do not be too wicked. Do not be a fool. And you kind of say, well, what are you talking about here, Solomon? I mean, isn't righteousness a good thing? Are we not supposed to do all things for the glory of God? Are we not told to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and strength? and our neighbor as ourselves. Doesn't Jesus tell us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? And what about wisdom? I thought that was a good thing, something we were supposed to pursue to understand how to live this life under the sun. And what is this thing about being too wicked? Does that mean I can be, well, just a little bit wicked? Is some unrighteousness okay? Well, no, it isn't. And wisdom is a good thing. As is righteousness, we ought to pursue the righteousness of God and seek to obey Him through the power of His Spirit as we live out the grace of the gospel. We ought to flee evil and sin. But the key here is that little word, overly righteous. And you combine that with the question that he asks as well. Why would you destroy yourself? And then we begin to get an understanding of what the preacher is talking about. You see, some people believe that by doing righteous things, doing good things, they can force God's hand to bless them. There is a deed-consequence relationship that they think exists between them and God. So if I do good things, God will give me a good life. And if I, if I do good things, I'll have good health. And God will give me many days on this earth. So if you are overly righteous, or we could say extra righteous, then the Lord's going to have to pour out extra blessings upon you. But that isn't how God works. You see, our relationship with God is not a mechanical one. It's a covenantal one. God pours out His blessings purely on the basis of His sovereign grace. It's His mercy and His love towards us that blesses us. And this is why when we do suffer things in this life, we go to Him in prayer. We cry out to Him with a heart of lament. We ask Him to intervene and deliver us and rescue us. That's what a covenantal relationship does. It's it's one of humble faith, of trusting in the Lord, recognizing that we do not deserve anything. And anything we do have is because God is merciful to us. But a mechanical way of trying to relate to God is based on these deeds and consequences. It tries to get Him to do what you want Him to do by doing and saying the right things or not doing or not saying the wrong things. But it never works because God is not a machine. He doesn't respond to manipulation. You cannot put a quarter in of good works and pull the lever and hope that you land on some sort of blessing. So the preacher says, don't be ultra-righteous, overly righteous. Don't think that you can somehow avoid the bad 
situations of life, the hard times, simply because you do what actually honors and glorifies God. You should do those things. Because as he says, don't be overly wicked. Don't be a fool. In fact, living wickedly is no guarantee of prosperity. Many times those who engage in sin do meet a quick demise. Sin has consequences. Eventually it does catch up with you. And they often come quickly and without warning. The statement to not be overly wicked is a statement to actually pursue righteousness through the Spirit of God. You, you already do sinful things. As we'll see in this text a little bit later, there are none righteous. So don't do those things. Don't give in to the corrupt desires of the fallen heart. Instead, look to Christ. Rest in His forgiving mercy. And then pursue through the aid of the Spirit the righteousness of God. Don't be overly righteous and don't be overly wicked thinking that that somehow makes a difference in the way that you live in this life and what will happen to you in this life under the sun. Because life under the sun, as we know, is twisted and it is tangled. Which brings us to the second observation of the preacher in this text as he considers this this paradox of life in this world. Not only is it crooked and bent... But the world is like that. The world is twisted because of us. Verses 19 and 20 says, Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now it is here that we actually begin to see that righteousness is a good thing. No, we cannot manipulate God. But it is good for us and it is good for the world, for the society, the culture in which we live. Wisdom and righteousness in this particular text of Ecclesiastes are parallel. They're they're speaking of the same thing in a sense as our wickedness and folly. And so when the preacher says wisdom gives strength to the wise, he's speaking of those who live in a way that is characterized by righteousness. That is to say, characterized by wanting to obey and and striving for the glory of God in all things. And he speaks here of rulers of a city. A ruler of a city or a king was considered to be, of course, the highest level of power in a city. And the picture then of a city uh, that is ruled by ten rulers is meant to portray immense power, great protection, and justice. So much so that a person in Solomon's day couldn't even imagine. And yet wisdom or righteousness is more powerful than that. It is better for a person than the protection, the order, the justice of a city that has ten great rulers. And so the way of wisdom, the the way of righteousness, is a better way to live life under the sun. And yet, despite that truth, though, the world, as the preacher already notes, is paradoxical. It is crooked, curved, and bent. And there is great injustice. And the reason for that is, As he says in verse 20, nobody is perfectly righteous. 
Even the righteous sin. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Even the wise do foolish things. And even the righteous still sin. And that is a consistent testimony all throughout Scripture. Paul said in Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short the glory of God. And David, Solomon's own father, wrote in Psalm 143, No one living is righteous before you. And so this twisted, tangled mess of this world exists because of us. We all sin. We all break God's commandments each and every day. And he gives us a little example of that. In verses 21 and 22, he says, Do not take heart to all the things people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. People gossip, they slander, they say things, they sin against each other with their tongue, with their mouths. Many times in secret, behind your back, Many times it could be those who are closest to you, those within your own household would do this. But, says Solomon, unless you think you're better than them, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. I mean, if you've driven down US 23 or I-94 or M14, you know that what Solomon says is probably true. The preacher is intentionally, though, using this simple sin of the tongue because he wants to highlight the fact that it is so easy to commit iniquity, to break God's law. It is literally on the tip of your tongue. Your mouth betrays the fallenness of humanity in your heart, in that old nature that infects all of us. And if your tongue is hard to control and sins so easily, what does that say about the whole person? It is little wonder then that the world is the way it is. No wonder the righteous suffer and no wonder the wicked prosper and no wonder life under the sun is a twisted and tangled paradox. We made it that way through our own unrighteousness. So how do you fix this? How do you unravel that which is twisted and tangled? How do you make sense of this mess? Solomon, the preacher king, wants to know. And so he begins a search in verse 23. He says, all of this, uh, this problem of this, this twisted and paradoxical world where the righteous sometimes suffer and the wicked sometimes prosper, all this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise. I will find the answer. I will find a way to make sense of this. To unravel the tangled mess. But did he? Verse 23. It was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? The wisest man of the world couldn't find an answer. He couldn't make sense of the vanity of life. It was too far off, too deep. The challenge was both horizontal 
and vertical. One could more easily explore the depths of the ocean or the far reaches of the universe before they could find a way to untangle this twisted and crooked life under the sun. The Lord tells us through the prophet Isaiah that as far as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Who can know the mind of the Lord and understand why things are the way they are? But what about wisdom? Doesn't it give strength? Great strength, more than a city with ten rulers. Doesn't it teach us to understand God and how we are to live before Him? Yes, it does. But it does not teach us everything about God, nor all that He is doing, nor all of His will. It reveals what we need to know about ourselves and how we can relate to God and how we can have our sins forgiven through Christ, who is our righteousness. But it does not reveal to us all that the Lord is doing in every little situation of the world. That belongs to His mind alone. And no amount of wisdom can search it out. It is too far, too deep. But the beautiful thing is this. While wisdom doesn't give you every answer to all of life's paradoxes, it does teach you something. You see, God's wisdom that He gives to us is given to us not to unravel the twists and turns of life, but to walk our way through them until we reach that better life above the sun. The preacher writes in verse 25, I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So he's continuing his his search for understanding. He he wants to find, as he says, the scheme of things. That is to say, the reckoning or the accounting of the reason why things are the way they are under the sun. Literally, though, it is the sum of all things when added together. Trying to make sense of this world. And as he looks at the world, he finds four things here in this text that he learns are true. They are realities. They are things we must understand and acknowledge if we are to live in the wisdom God gives us and walk our way through this life into the life above the sun. And the first thing he finds as he looks at the world is that temptation and sin are everywhere. He says in verse 26, I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. And what he is describing here is not simply a literal adulteress or an immoral woman, but the personification of folly itself. You see, both wisdom and folly are personified by women in the Bible. An example of this is in Proverbs 1, where we read, Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets, she raises her voice. So you have Lady Wisdom. 
Lady Folly shows up as well in the book of Proverbs, particularly chapter 7. And she appears as a seductress, leading young men astray into destruction, for such is the end of sin. And Lady Folly represents not just sexual temptation and sin, but all folly, all foolishness, everything that goes against God's law and His created order. The preacher is saying here that folly or sin and temptation, it is everywhere in this world, everywhere that I look, I see it. And the end, if you follow it, is more bitter than death itself. As Paul says, the wages of sin is death. But while sin and temptation are everywhere, we begin to see some measure of hope. Because the preacher says here, he who pleases God escapes her. They escape folly. They escape her snares. They escape her traps as she tries to drag a person down into everlasting death. And more on that in a minute. But the second thing the preacher finds, besides sin and temptation being everywhere is that you cannot always understand the final sum of all life's difficult paradoxes and problems. He just says in verse 27, Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme or the sum of all things which my soul has sought repeatedly, I have found, I have not found. I found none. I couldn't discover it. It was a mystery to me. It was too high. It was too deep, as he said before. And he looked repeatedly. He kept trying. He kept adding and putting one thing to another, trying different things, and he couldn't find the answer. And so he's admitting, there are things that are just too high and too deep. I cannot understand them. That is what I found. There's a third thing he found, though, as he looked at the world and tried to make sense of it. And that is that there are no upright people, as he already said, even the righteous sin. Verse 27 and in 28, he says, One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now, this is another one of those enigmatic and difficult sayings that we find in Ecclesiastes. Is is Solomon being a misogynist here? No, no. I don't believe he is. In fact, I believe what he is doing is he's making us all equal, equally unrighteous, equally sinful. He's using hyperbole and he's trying to create a a shock value to drive home the seriousness of breaking God's law of sin. To say one in a thousand is similar to our expression, one in a million. It it, it means that it's virtually impossible. It's not going to happen. The odds are too great against it. And so you can imagine then Solomon sitting around with a bunch of his bros, right? And he says, hey guys, hey guys. I looked at this world in all my wisdom and I could not find one good woman in the entire world. It's kind of ironic when you know Solomon's story. How many wives and concubines he had. He was surrounded by women. He says, guys, (laughs) I can't find a good one. 
And they all laugh at him. And then he says, but you know what? I only found one good man in a thousand. And they all stop laughing because they realize he's talking about them. Nobody is good. Nobody is without sin. Everybody breaks God's law. Even those who are wise will act foolishly at times. And even those who strive for righteousness will at times fail. It doesn't matter if you are a man or a woman. Both sin. Iniquity infects us both equally. But the fourth thing that Solomon finds is that God makes people upright. So he found that sin and temptation are all around us. He found that you can't always understand why things are the way they are. You can't solve, find the final sum of the paradoxes of life. And there are no upright people in this world, but God has made man upright. Verse 29, see this alone I found that God made man upright, but they have sought many schemes. That little phrase, see this alone I found, means he's now getting to the very heart of the matter. And he found that this world is twisted and tangled. There is much injustice and sin and corruption in it, but God is not the author of that sin. God is not the one who made it that way. For God had made man upright. He's talking about the fall or the world before the fall into sin. Adam and Eve knew no sin. They walked in innocence and righteousness before the Lord. They lived in fellowship and this beautiful world that he had created. Everything in that world was good. Very good, said the Lord. It wasn't twisted and it wasn't tangled. Things made sense. But then in came the tempter. And both Adam and Eve, they listened and they gave in. And they sought the knowledge they were not supposed to have. The knowledge of good and evil. For they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be gods themselves. And in breaking God's law, they brought the whole world under the curse of sin and turned everything in the wrong direction. What was once straight was now bent and what was whole was now broken. And what was beautiful was now marred by ugliness. What was living began to die. Everything is now twisted and tangled. And that is what Solomon's wisdom quest had revealed to him. Sin and temptation were everywhere. You can't find the sum, the end account of this senseless paradox of life under the sun because nobody is upright even though God had made them upright. But they twisted it and tangled it. They made a mess. So don't be overly righteous or overly wicked. Don't think you can somehow unravel what you have twisted up by your own sin. You can never be wise enough or righteous enough to force God's hand. But the wisdom God does give leads you to the one who does untangle that which is twisted in this life.
In verse 18, this is what the preacher said. It is good that you should take hold of this. And from that, withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God will come out of both of them. Last week, we saw the preacher pose this question, who can know what is good? Back in chapter 6. Who can know what is good for us as humans? Well, here is what is good. Take hold of it. He says, grasp it. Don't let it go. Keep it tight. Hold on to this truth. It is this, that the one who fears God will come out from both. Fearing God is is a trembling trust. It is faith grounded in the reality of God's holiness, power, justice, and truth. And the one who fears God will come out of both tragic errors. They will come out of the foolish way of thinking that you can force God's hand simply by doing the good and right things. And it will come out of the thinking that says, hey, just live the way you want. Sin doesn't really matter anyhow. So here it is. Here is what wisdom leads us to. It leads us to how to journey through this life. You see, you fear God who gives you that wisdom to journey through the life under the sun until you reach that life above the sun. Jesus said, Behold, I am making all things new. I am unraveling what is twisted by your sin. And I am untangling the mess you have made. And so take hold of Christ in faith, who is the power and the wisdom of God. And He will unwind all that has been twisted. And He will do that until you arrive at that day when He comes again and we enter into that new heavens and that new earth where nothing is twisted ever again. We can't unravel the paradox But Jesus can, and Jesus does. So trust Him. Fear God. Walk in His wisdom and righteousness until all things are made right. Let us pray. Father in heaven, again, we praise You and thank You for Your Word and its truth. We're thankful that while we do not have all the answers to the things that happen in this life, we know that Your wisdom is perfect And we can trust it. We can trust Christ who is our righteousness, who is your wisdom. And know that He is indeed making all things new. And so strengthen our faith in Him. Increase our courage to trust in your goodness, even though it can be at times difficult to see knowing that you are continuing to work in this world for our good and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.